very glad to to all of you. I hope you're uh, doing very well this morning. Um, you know, there are some uh, pretty funny dads on Twitter that uh, share little tidbits from their experience as fathers. And I thought it would be kind of fun on this Father's Day uh, to see some of those. So I have created a list. This is the top ten tweets from dads on fatherhood. So here we go. Number ten is... My six-year-old called ranch dressing salad frosting, and now I'll never call it anything else. Alright, number nine. Me, what did you learn at school today? My five-year-old. Learned about dragons. Your class learned about dragons? I learned about dragons. I don't know what that means. And number eight. The seven-year-old says, Why does my mom like cleaning up after us so much? Me, don't ever ask for that if you want to live. Number seven, my youngest just lightly bumped into something if you're wondering why she's wearing 37 bandages. <laughs> Number six, my three-year-old just called a bird a throat fart, and now I have to update my entire book. <laughs> Number five, my youngest is being tested for the gifting program in school. My other son thinks his toothbrush is haunted. Number four, I accidentally dripped some mustard on my newborn daughter's forehead, and long story short, a nurse just walked in and saw me lick the baby. Number three, watching the kids play hide and seek, I see my kid hiding behind a chain link fence. At least you don't have to save the power. Bedtime, me. Mom told you to stay in bed. Three year old says, There's a scary monster in my closet. Scarier than mom? And the number one dad tweet on fatherhood is, we can take our kids to a restaurant tonight and just cut out the middleman and just spill a drink, throw crayons under the table, and like $60 on the top.
Well, you can't say that because that's adding works to faith. The Bible is real clear that nobody is saved by works or saved by grace. We receive that by faith when we believe, and that's what gets you into heaven. So these guys would say that those folks over there are just into works righteousness. And these folks would say that those folks over there are just into cheap grace. So what's the deal? What's the deal? I think that the problem here in this debate is not where the two sides disagree. It's actually over a word that both of them are defining incorrectly. And it's this word, saved. The word saved. This sort of assumed definition has gotten so entrenched in our culture that everybody sort of accepts it without even thinking. But it's very, very important to our understanding about faith, our real understanding about faith. Both sides of this debate were essentially defining being saved as having satisfied the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Uh, so the fight becomes, if you think about this, the fight becomes just how much am I allowed to not follow Jesus and they still have to let me in when I die. Now, here's the problem with that thinking. In all of the New Testament, all of the New Testament, when does Jesus ever say, I want to proclaim to you the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die? He never does, for good reason, because it misses the point entirely. Uh, stay with me for a moment. Imagine, if you will, a groom saying to his bride on their wedding day, what is the minimal amount of faith and commitment and fidelity that I can give to you and still remain married? What's the least I can do here? How would that fly on your wedding day? It would go over like a lead balloon, wouldn't it? Okay. Imagine applying for a job and saying, okay, what's the minimal amount that I have to do to keep this job? In other words, how much are you willing to put up with before I get fired? What's the least I can do here? See, life with Jesus is not about doing the minimum. It's not just about heaven or hell someday. It's about the invitation to walk with God now. Jesus never presented life with God like this. Here's the least amount of truth that you have to affirm in order to make the cut. He never presented it in that way. What Jesus does is through my life, through me, through my life, through my death, through my resurrection, the presence and power and love of God come to you. And if you want to live in that, then follow me because that's the way you learn to live in this. Trust me about everything, including your eternity as a free grace gift that you cannot earn no matter what you do. So, saving faith is not the least amount you have to do in order to, or what you got to believe in order to get in. It's a posture of total dependence, complete trust, that enables me to receive that forgiveness and life from God. And faith is the vehicle by which I receive that. Now this leads us to another issue that there's a lot of confusion about regarding faith. There's a real important question. Lots of debates about this. And the question is, what is the relationship between faith and works? What's the relationship between these two dynamics? For example, Paul writes in the, in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 3, he's talking about Abraham's faith. And it says in verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith was recognized by God, not his works. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But Paul goes on to say this a little bit later in the chapter. 
He says in verse 28, we maintain that a person is justified by, what's that word? Faith. faith. Justified by faith, apart from observing the law, which is really obeying the rules of religion. Again, faith, not works. Now later on in the New Testament, the Apostle James is writing. He's talking about exactly the same passage of Scripture regarding Abraham and his faith. And in James 2.23, puts it this way. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Wait a minute now. Does it seem like Paul and James are disagreeing here? Actually, they aren't at all. That last statement made by James is really, really consistent with the emphasis that he brings almost throughout his entire letters. You know as well as I do that different writers bring different emphasis. That's why, um, just for example, we have four Gospels all telling the exact same story, but each with a different angle and a different focus. Gospel writer Matthew is a Jew writing primarily to Jews, and that's why he includes the Jewish genealogy at the beginning of this letter there. And he includes the, the best confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, over the, the rules and the laws and the traditions and things like that. So that's Matthew. Now, Mark, the gospel writer, has a lot of Roman influence in his life. So his gospel, you'll notice, reads more like a movie script that's sort of written for outsiders so they can understand the way of faith. So Mark's gospel includes the highlights, the miracles, some big miraculous episodes, and there's, uh, it's, it seems to be very, a lot more capsulized in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Then you've got Luke, uh, the Gospel writer who is a premier historian. Uh, he, you can see this plain as day in the first two chapters of the book of Luke. Historical accuracy is paramount in his book. There's tons of historical detail, which is pretty amazing. John, the Gospel writer, is a theologian who could care less about chronology altogether. He's all about light and darkness, sin and holiness, abiding in Jesus, loving God and loving others above all. So all four writers have wildly different emphasis. So as we look at the New Testament at Paul and James in this contrast here, the issue really is, is two things here. The first thing is this. It's what gets emphasized. James, the writer, is basically saying, okay, you say you're a Christian. That's wonderful. Show me you're a Christian by the way that you live. Would others consider you a Christian? Would others be able to see that in your life? Or are you just a talker? James is kind of a show me guy, I speak from Missouri. Um, the second big thing that you can look at here, it's worth looking at, is really about the heart of faith, the heart of it. The kind of faith that matters to God, the kind of faith that actually has the power to change a life. Because there's a really, really important difference when it comes to belief between things that I think I believe and the things that I really believe. Here's what I mean. There are some beliefs that I think that I hold. But when time passes or circumstances change, it turns out they're not really that solid of beliefs at all. There's a classic example in the Bible, which is almost kind of funny here. Um, God meets Moses at the burning bush. You probably are familiar with that story. Right after God meets Moses and he has that encounter with God there at the burning bush, Moses and Aaron gather together all the people of God, all the, the people of, uh, all the children of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 4, he's talking about all this. 
And they gather the people together. Moses tells all the people about God. He tells them about the burning bush. He gives them some of the signs and wonders that God's empowered him to do. And at that point, we're told about the Israelites. They believe. Say those two words with me. They believed. It goes on to say, and when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So they believed. At that moment, in the safety of their all being together with Moses, they believe. They say, Moses, you're our guy. Lead us out of Egypt. And Moses does. He does that. A few chapters later, while they're leaving Egypt, Pharaoh decides that it's not such a great idea after all to let his entire free workforce uh, go free, willy-nilly, out to the desert, no guarantee they're ever coming back. So he decides to pursue them with his armies. So as they're marching their way through the desert, now the Red Sea is in front of them, and Pharaoh's armies are coming in behind them. So these very same Israelites now say to Moses in Exodus 14, and I love this, it says, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took us out here to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? No, they didn't say that. They didn't say that at all. In Egypt, they said, we believe. You're a leader. Moses for president. You're number one. We're going to file in behind you. You're our God. Take us out of here. But then when the crisis hits, why did you take us out of Egypt? Didn't you realize how much we love being in Egypt? So when they say they believed, I think they were probably sincere in that moment. But when the crisis hits, when it all hits the fan, that belief was no longer there. When their circumstances changed, it turns out they didn't really believe at all. Now this happens in our world more than you think it would. For example, we go to church and we open up our Bible and say, I believe the Bible. I believe when Jesus says, don't be anxious about stuff. Don't be anxious about your money. Don't be anxious about what you'll eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Don't freak out about your possessions. Don't be anxious. Trust your Father in heaven. And we hear that. I think, yeah, that's what I believe. I'm on board with that. I don't trust the money. I live in faith and trust and generosity. That's who I am. Then the economy goes south. People have less money. And they finally start to get anxious, worried, stressed. And they begin to clutch onto what they have. Turns out, we don't trust the money as long as we have money. When we lose something, it starts to get a little wobbly. We might not even lose all that much. You know, no one thinks we're not going to starve. We're still in much better shape than most people on our planet. But things get a little shaky. We find out what our real beliefs actually are. Sometimes our faith is a little wobblier than we thought. So the things that we really, really believe are part of what make up what might be called our mental map. Say those two words with me. Mental map. We have a mental map about the way that we think things really are. The way that things really work. I just believe. These are things that I just believe. It's my default. I believe these things. I believe if I touch fire, I'll get burned. I believe in gravity. I don't have to psych myself up. I don't have to say, I'm going to demonstrate, I'm going to prove to you just how strong my convictions are about gravity. I don't have to do that. I don't have to restrain myself from stepping off a cliff. I don't need to do that. I just believe that's how things are. 
and it guides my daily living. I don't step off cliffs. I have made a lifestyle of not stepping off cliffs. Now, James here, the, the Bible writer, is onto something. He's onto some truth. The way he's saying, in essence, the way you can tell what my core convictions are is to look at how I live. Because the truth is, we rarely violate our mental math. We really do live what we believe, but we live what we really believe. So, when Jesus comes now, when Jesus comes, he is not interested in developing surface faith. He's interested in developing it in his followers real faith. Like, so when James the writer says these words, uh, lots of you have read before, without faith, I mean without works, faith is dead. So they go together. When he says those things, he, what he, he's not meaning this. He's not saying, in addition to your faith, you have to, you have to add a certain level, a level of behavioral compliance or they're not going to let you into heaven. He's not saying that. He's just noting that if you claim to believe something but your actions are different, your actions are a more reliable indicator than anything else. Paul the writer actually uh, he affirms this same set of thoughts. Um, in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, listen, from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. It's an interesting phrase, to the obedience that comes from faith. It's not obedience out of obligation or out of religion. It's simply the actions that show what you really believe. It's just as impossible to separate faith from works as it is, as it is to separate heat from fire. It just can't be done. When you understand the nature of your mental map, your true belief, your true actions, they go together because it just simply reveals what you really believe. Now, I want to uh, take a moment to sort of shift gears. We're going to discover something really, really important about faith through the life of the guy that all of Israel started with. This is uh, Abraham. Abraham seems to be, in a repeated sort of fashion, the Bible's kind of model or the example of a model of faith. And we're going to look at what uh, Paul writes in uh, the book of Romans in the fourth chapter. This is going to bring some encouragement to all of us. <clears throat> so this is from Romans chapter 4. It says this, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. Goes on to say, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah, as his wife, his, her womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Okay, so Abraham is, is very often presented in the New Testament as the model for faith. But if you know his story at all, you know that um, his faith doesn't always look that impressive. Michelle touched on this a number of weeks ago, and she did it brilliantly. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abram. He says these words. Basically, he says, I'm calling you. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything familiar 
Go to a place that you don't even know, but I'm going to show it to you. You're going to have a son. You'll be the father of a great nation, he says. My plan, think about this, my plan to bless all of humanity is going to come to pass through you. Incredible words. You could imagine hearing those words from God. Well, the very, very next episode in Abraham's life, same chapter, uh, Genesis 12, Abraham and his wife Sarah leave. God said, leave, I want you to go. They left, they obeyed. So they stepped out and went. They traveled to Egypt. And Abraham says to his wife, basically, upon their arrival in Egypt, um, Sarah, you're, you're kind of a hottie, and I know these Egyptians. Uh, one of them's going to want you, and they'll kill me so they can have you. So let's lie about this and tell them you're my sister. And then so if one of them wants you, they can have you, which will suck a little bit for you, but at least I'll be fine. Okay? So at first, Abraham doesn't seem like a tower of faith at this point in time. So they do this. He throws Sarah under the bus like this, and Pharaoh does, in fact, call out Sarah to come into the palace and join the royal harem. And he gives Abraham all kinds of gifts for this. Sheep, cattle, camels, lots of stuff. And Abraham says, thank you very much. Now I'm rich. Kind of like that. And then Pharaoh finds out that Abraham is actually, I mean, that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And that Abraham's God is not all that happy about this arrangement. So <laughs> Pharaoh then asks Abraham the very same question that God asked Eve after the fall. What is this thing you have done? What have you done? In other words, the story is showing that the pagan Pharaoh is actually more concerned about doing right than God's man Abraham. And so, now, time goes by. Eight chapters later, Abraham does the whole she's my sister routine a second time, gets a bunch more cattle and sheep and all kinds of stuff out of it, and, you know, moves along. Now, beyond that, time passes. After 11 more years of waiting on a child, Sarah pulls Abraham aside. Remember, 11 years now, she pulls her husband Abraham aside and says, So, what do you think? <laughs> so, what's going on? By now, Abraham is 86. Sarah is 76. And so, Sarah says, Why don't you just go ahead and have a child with my servant girl, Hagar? So, does Abraham respond by saying, Heaven forbid. No, 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 Sarah. We must trust God. We must. No. Abraham basically says, well, you think it's a good idea. I'll take one for the team. I am the Lord's servant. So, up you. And he doesn't. He doesn't. And it's a grease fire. I mean, it's a disaster. Not only that, God comes 13 years later now. Think about all this time that's passed. 13 years later tells Abraham and Sarah that they will yet have a child. Now does Abraham respond by saying, Yes, God, I believe. I don't waver. No, Abraham fell face down and laughed. He laughed at God. And he says these words, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? So he laughs at God under his breath. And not only that, but Sarah laughed as well. And she must have laughed harder because God comes to Abraham and says, Why did Sarah laugh? I get you laughing, Abe. You'll sell out your wife and your faith for a good place, don't you? But Sarah, I expected more from her. You know? Think about this. Abraham has so little faith that he pre pretends Sarah is not his wife twice. So little faith. So little faith that he impregnates a servant girl. So little faith that he laughs under his breath when God himself is talking to him. 
And this is a man that's a model of faith. What's that about? Patience. <laughs> For perspective's sake, let's just take a, a quick look at the world from which Abraham came. When Abraham said yes to God, he was starting at absolute scratch. How many of the Ten Commandments did Abraham know? They didn't exist yet. The Noahic Commandments, they're not even there. There's no Moses, there's no law, there's no temple, there's no priest, there's no Psalms, there's no Sunday school flannel graphs, there's nothing. He knew exactly no stories about this Lord God. He had zero information. His past is one of just a, a brutal, superstitious culture. That's what he came out of. God says uh, these words in Joshua 24. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Abraham's father worshipped other gods. So as far as we know, Abraham, here in Genesis 12, this is the first inkling he has that there is this all-powerful, loving, personal God. And this God speaks to him and says, go. Go from your country. Go from your people. Go from your father's people to the land that I'm going to show you. I'll show you. There's just not much information there to go on. Here's the key. Verse 4. It very simply says these words. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He didn't have much information, but he had this little word from God, and he went. See, Abraham is, is deliberately not presented in the Old Testament as some kind of spiritual genius, the guy who innovated the concept of ethical monotheism. No. He's a guy. He's a dude. <laughs> and he's filled with confusion and ignorance and doubt and cowardice. So why is his faith considered strong? Why? It's because he chooses to wait for a son that only God can bring. And it's because he does not live in denial about the fact that there's nothing he can do about this. All he has is God. That's why Paul says he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He's an old man with an old wife and an old body and no pharmaceutical company to help him out. And he does not allow his life to be shrunken down and limited by what is humanly possible. He's completely dependent on God and only God. See, this story does not depend on Abraham's certainty. Abraham doesn't say, Sarah, we just have to claim, 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 claim this promise. The hero of the story isn't Abraham. The hero is God. Think about this. Abraham's dad, Terah, might have had stronger faith than Abraham, but he placed it in the wrong gods. Abraham just did what God said to do. In other words, and, and this is the crux of the whole message, folks. This is it. It's better to put a little faith in a big God than big faith in a little God. It's better to put a little faith in a big God than a little faith than big faith in a little God. That's really, really good news. And this is why Jesus says, all you really need is faith about the size of a mustard seed. Because it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Here's what I mean. Think about this. We talked about this earlier. When the Israelites escaped Egypt, there's this incredible picture. They're fleeing Egypt. Pharaoh is coming after them. And God parts the Red Sea. And they're walking through on dry land with walls of water built up on both sides. Some of them are probably loving it. Some of them are probably saying, in your face, Pharaoh, you can eat it for all I care. We're cruising now. 
But some of the others are saying, we're all going to die. <laughs> Look at this. This is going to collapse on us and we're all going to die. They did not all have equal faith, but they were all equally saved. Because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you, it is the object of your faith. That's why in Romans 4, Paul says this about Abraham and the, and the God that he believes in. Abraham, we read this earlier, Abraham is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. Now, what God is this? The God who gives life to the dead and calls things into being that are not. Abraham's hope was not in how strong his faith was. His hope was in God. What God? The God who calls into being things that are not. Faith is not so much about you. It's about the God you believe in. So, this week, this week, walk by faith. This week, don't worry about perfect faith. This week, don't focus on the quality of your faith. Focus on the object of your faith. Remember how big God is. And remember that nothing is impossible to the one who believes. Don't you your hands Lord, we are grateful that this great big burden of finding a way to please you and make it someday to heaven does not fall upon our shoulders. Thank you for the truth that comes from your word. That salvation comes to us by grace through faith. We believe in your goodness. We believe in your love. We believe in the sacrifice that you gave through Jesus to pay our way. Not that we would ever earn it or deserve it. We can just receive it by faith. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, of how important it is to keep faith in its proper perspective. We believe purely in your goodness, in your power. Because you are so big and powerful. So, Lord, Help us to remove the burden off of our shoulders of trying to perform and please you through what we do. But help us to live a life of gratitude for the good things you have already done for us, for the way that you have taken away the distance between us and you, taken away the, dis the distance between our fallen, filthy lives and your perfect holiness. Thank you for the truth of your word that tells us that we stand before you even right now blameless because of what Jesus has done. Help us to just receive that by faith. And may our lives be lives just filled with gratitude. May there be an expression of gratitude to you. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what you stand? Let me remind you, if you are here with a prayer need of some kind, we'll have a couple of our friends in the back corner available to you. Just go back there and we'll meet you back there and we can pray with you about whatever it is that's going on in your life. Maybe it's something physical or financial or relationship, whatever it may be. Um, we want to bring God's best to bear in your life. Okay? Alright, um, we got plenty of stuff back there. We got some bacon sandwiches. So, uh, make sure that's all gone by the time we leave today. Okay, let's take it home. Oh dear God, no. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Father's Day.